If you have a Bible, could you please take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63, if you're looking for Isaiah, I would say go to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Psalms, and then you can head towards the right. And we are in Isaiah 63, which is very near the end of the book of Isaiah. We are coming to some of the closing chapters, and Lord willing, we'll close out this series in Isaiah um, before the end of the year. In Isaiah 60 through 62, the future heavenly Zion is described. It's described as a place of light, abundance, and peace. A place in chapter 60 where the Lord is the everlasting sunshine and darkness is no more. Jesus, the Messiah, announces in chapter 61 that he is coming to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set free the captives, and to comfort everyone who mourns. He announces the year of the Lord's favor and blesses us with new clothes of righteousness and sprouting justice in our world. Chapter 62 tells us that he's given us a new name. No longer are we called desolate and forsaken, but we are called, my delight is in her. Married, the holy people, the redeemed, sought out, a city not forgotten. Taken together, this string of verses paints a breathtaking picture of all of the joy and beauty of the kingdom of God whose doors are open to all who will rest in Christ. And we're reminded that all of this has come and will come about through the word and the work of the anointed conqueror that's described at the beginning of this section in chapter 59 and here in the beginning of chapter 63. You'll hopefully remember that in chapter 59, after the righteous remnant laments their sins and the sins of the people of God, the Lord says that he sees all the unrighteousness in the world and that he will act. He will act to bring justice and redemption because he alone can. We watch him put on his armor to repay his enemies and to redeem all who will repent and trust in him. Many of those same themes are, are picked up in Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, the other end of this bookend, yet maybe because it's on the, hill, the heels of such breathtaking descriptions of God's blessings, there is an almost shocking emphasis on the justice and the judgment that the Lord is going to bring on his enemies on the last day. I can think of few other passages that speak so strongly of God's righteous anger on his enemies, except maybe those in the book of Revelation. And the apostle John was almost certainly drawing on these images here in Isaiah as he describes the final judgment in his book. This picture of, of God judging the wicked who refuse to repent is one that our world finds hard to swallow. And frankly, we can relate. We want the, the blessings of the year of the Lord's favor. We want the the joy and the beauty of the heavenly Zion. We don't want to think about God's vengeance. Yet the reality is that such peace and pleasure of the new kingdom can only come if God punishes his enemies and rids the world of evil. And the reality here is that the one who is judging here in this chapter is Jesus himself, which reminds us not to, to pit the God of the Old Testament and the Jesus of the new against each other. They are one and the same. 
Remember, the whole book of Isaiah is structured around these visions of, of the Messiah, these revelations of who the Messiah is. First, he is the, the sovereign Lord and the King. Then he is the, the suffering servant. And here he is the anointed conqueror. Jesus is the God-ordained warrior who will fight the final battle with all of his enemies. We need to be careful not to relegate Jesus to being only a baby in a manger or only a savior who suffers to redeem us. He is those things. Most certainly he is those things, but he is also the final judge of all humanity. He has, Isaiah 61:2 come to announce the year of the Lord's favor. But as that verse also says, he will bring the day of the vengeance of our God. As we sit here surrounded by the reminders of Jesus' first advent, in a season of rejoicing at the good news that the Messiah has come, Isaiah 63, one through six, calls us to not forget the coming judgment of God on his enemies. Let's say it this way as far as our big idea goes. Don't forget, don't forget the coming judgment that is part of our salvation. Don't forget the coming judgment that is a part of our salvation. To that end, my hope is to simply lead us in meditating on this description of God's judgment and lead us also to the grace and the mercy of Jesus who took that judgment upon himself on the cross. Let's begin by reading these six verses at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 63. This is God's word to us this afternoon. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Friends, brothers and sisters, our call this morning is to not forget the coming judgment that is a part of our salvation. And as we consider this description of God's righteous wrath, we'll do our best to walk through this passage, but also know that these themes that I want us to shape our thoughts around are woven in and out of all six of these verses. One of the first things that we note, though, is this. God's judgment is on his long-standing enemies. God's judgment is on his long-standing enemies. The passage, if you noticed, is, is framed around the questions of verse, verses one and two. And the first question asks, who exactly is the judge of the enemies of God and his people? We've already said that, that it is Jesus. And we see now that he is coming from Edom and its capital city of Basra. 
He's returning from the west into the city of Jerusalem, the city of God's people. We might be surprised if we've been studying with Isaiah that in this, this context that he's not coming from Babylon. That's where we would expect him to come, isn't it? But it actually, in some ways, doesn't matter whether it's Babylon or Edom or as in Ezekiel, Gog, and Magog. These cities all represent an ancient evil. They all, they all stand for all of the nations who have rebelled against God and persecuted his people. By extension, they, they stand for every form of evil and wickedness and brokenness and darkness in our world. Our world is not the way that it's supposed to be because of our sin, and God's judgment seeks to trample out every remnant of the results of our rebellion against him. Death, disease, demons, and all forms of darkness and every consequence of sin will one day be crushed by our God. And such judgment is, is necessary if we are to know the joy of the kingdom that's described in the, in the chapters before this one. I put some Christmas lights on our tree earlier this week, and I realized that half of them didn't work. You've all experienced this. <laughs> and so because of that, our decorating paused because it's hard to celebrate with a bunch of dark twinkle lights in the middle of your tree. Well, even more so, can the light of Zion fill the world if the darkness of evil is still present? Can the joy of God's kingdom be eternal if there is some threat of wickedness breaking through the gates? No. And so therefore, if we long for the fullness of God's blessings that are described to us, then God has to fully and finally judge his enemies. And so we see him, and here he comes out of Edom, having brought perfect and final justice on the wicked and on sin. And so while there is a soberness to this passage, and I think that is the, the key emotion that comes from it, there is also an element of triumph, because the destruction of God's enemies means the fullness of his kingdom. We, his people, welcome him into the city as the warrior savior who rescues us from the world and from our own flesh and from the devil. As God comes out of Edom, we see not only the necessity of his judgment, but also the patience that's behind it. It is necessary, but he is patient in it. When we think about God's anger, we may imagine that he is like us, meaning that he has a short fuse, that his judgment boils over in quick reaction like we often do. But how patient God is. Edom is an ancient evil, and for thousands and thousands of years, God has allowed things to go from bad to worse in his world. He has let us trash his good world and defame his holy name like looters in some jewelry shop, but still he has stayed his hand. Yet we're told here that there is a day coming when he will stand for evil no more. A day of complete and perfect justice. God's judgment is on his long-standing enemies. It's necessary, but it's also filled with patience. Notice next, God's judgment flows from his perfect righteousness and strength. God's justice flows from his perfect righteousness and from his perfect strength. So in verse 1, we not only see where he is coming from, but we also see how he is dressed. 
is clothed, we're told, in splendid garments like those of a king. And all of his clothes are stained crimson, stained a deep, dark red, like a worker who would stomp and crush grapes for making wine. It's probably not a job that any of us have ever had, but you can imagine how there would be no stopping the the juice of the grapes from staining your clothing if that was your job. And it appears that, that Jesus has his clothes stained in a very similar way. He's also said to be marching in great strength. I wonder then if, if under his, his royal red-stained robes, we can see the, the armor that he has put on in chapter 59. You remember his breastplate of righteousness and his helmet of salvation. They were described as garments of vengeance and zeal. His clothes speak of, of who he is and correspond to his response to, the question, uh, to this question of who it is that is coming. He says, it's I. It is I speaking in righteousness and mighty to save. He is marked by righteousness, by justice, and by strength. These words of righteousness might remind us of the picture of Jesus in Revelation 1, where he is seen with a sharp two-edged sword coming right out of his mouth. The truth of who God is, of his holiness and justice, and the words of his message of redemption, redemption come with the reality of judgment. Isn't this what Isaiah says about the Messiah in this prophecy that we read so often this time of year? In Isaiah 11, we're told he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Jesus will judge with perfect righteousness and with unfailing strength. The image of these verses recalls an army returning from battle, as we've said, except in this case, who's in the army? It's Jesus. Jesus alone is the army. If we think about individuals with such power, we might remember some of David's mighty men. I look back in 2 Samuel and saw the first of his mighty men, Josheb, Besheth, who wielded a spear against 800 men and killed them all at once. We think of Samson who killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. But Jesus is the mightiest of men. He's the strongest of judges. He destroys every single one of his enemies with no help from anyone. This leads to our third thought. In light of who God is and his perfect righteousness and strength, we can see that God's judgment is something he alone can bring. God's judgment is something that he alone can bring. Verse 1 describes this reality while the Lord explicitly states it in verse 3, that he alone has brought judgment in part because he looked around for other people to join him, but no one could. And so the rest of the passage is filled with the Lord saying, I have done. Maybe you can think of a task at home or at work that only you can do. And here we see that the final judgment is something that the Lord alone can accomplish. We get a clearer and frankly more graphic picture of what the Lord has done in response to the question of verse 2 as to why his clothes are so red. As the anointed warrior approaches, it becomes clear that his clothes were not originally red, but rather they are stained red, again, like one who was stepping and stomping on grapes. But it's not grape juice. 
that has turned his robes crimson. It's blood. It's the blood of all of God's enemies that he has crushed in his just wrath. Speaking of that final day of God's wrath, we read this in Revelation 14. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Who can bring this kind of judgment? Could you? Could I? Sometimes we think we can. We're often like Frodo upon discovering that his uncle Bilbo's old nemesis Gollum was alive and following them. His response was to wish that Bilbo had killed Gollum. He said to Gandalf that Gollum deserved death, not pity. To which Gandalf replied, deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death. And some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. For even the very wise cannot see all ends. We understand justice. We understand justice because we're created in the image of a just God and we long for justice. We rejoice when people who have done us wrong are paid back for their sins. Societies at large seek to promote justice. We create courts and legal systems. We punish offenders and we pass the death penalty on what we determine are the worst of criminals. We seek to run our homes in righteousness, disciplining our children so that they might learn to do what is right but we fail so often. We're too harsh or we're too lenient. We get the facts mixed up or we misinterpret them or we don't know all of them. We lock people away who have done nothing wrong and we even impose the death penalty on people who are later proven innocent. Consider the events of one of the most horrific things we've seen in recent memory, this school shooting near Detroit. And we're all trying to figure out how to bring justice. Is there any way to bring justice completely in that case? I can't do it. And so we are painfully aware that God alone can enact perfect justice. He alone is perfectly patient. He alone is perfectly righteous. He alone has perfect strength. And for a thousand other reasons, he alone can bring judgment. In light of God's coming perfect justice, and in the midst of a world that's filled with a desire for justice and the inability to bring that justice about, we who are followers of Jesus are called to remember the words of Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When we love our enemies, we are showing them the love and the mercy and the grace shown to us in Jesus. But we are also recognizing that judgment will come one day. 
but it's not ours to mete out. God alone can do that. We're led then into our fourth thought on this picture of God's judgment. God's judgment is terrifying to behold. God's judgment is terrifying. If you read this passage with even the slightest attention to what's being said, then this is something that hardly even needs to be stated. And yet we are so prone to avert our eyes from God's justice and his judgment that we would be wise to stare into it when we come upon God, uh, when we find it in God's word. Just a side note, this is the gift of reading and studying and preaching through books of the Bible. We're forced to consider all the facets of who God is and we see them in the right context. We see in verse six, the image of the, the cup of God's wrath, which is not new in the book of Isaiah. He, here he makes his enemies drink this cup of his wrath and they are made drunk on it. But the more shocking image is of Jesus trampling over his foes in anger. He is not aloof in his judgment. This is not a disease that he sends. It's not some rock that he lets loose to crush those who rebel against, them, against him. No, he is there. He is stomping out the lifeblood. of those who refuse to repent and believe. This is the future of all who reject God and his Messiah, Jesus. And it's the reality that hangs over all of us, whether we want to accept it or not. In his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards said, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Again, we're taken back by such descriptions of God's wrath. But if we have eyes to see, then we might discover the, the mercy of words like those in Isaiah 63, or even in, in Jonathan Edwards' sermon. They are a warning that, that cause all people to repent. They call you who might be here today, who have never found salvation in Jesus, to turn from sin and to trust in the one who took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God on the day of his vengeance. And yet, this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the day of salvation. If you are far from Christ and underneath his judgment, turn. Turn from sin and believe in Christ. And for we who are in Christ, we have the promise of the heavenly Zion written on our hearts but we must be reminded of the reality of God's justice and the eternal punishment that everyone outside of Christ must face. Shouldn't such a, a picture of what, God, of, of what awaits all who reject the Lord drive us to announce the good news of the gospel, of the year of the Lord's favor, of the day of salvation that is today? 
Because while God's judgment is terrifying to behold, we also know this. God's judgment is not all that he is. Let's think finally on this beautiful truth that God's judgment is not all that he is. Even in a passage as startling as this one, there are seeds of hope. In verse 1, the anointed conqueror speaks in righteousness, but he is also mighty to save. And seeing that no one could rescue his people, he himself came, and his own arm has brought salvation. This wrath that will be born forever by those who refuse to trust in Christ was born completely by Jesus on the cross. And while it crushed him and buried him, he finally crushed the serpent's head. And he buried death through his resurrection. We see in verse 4 that while the day of vengeance is in the heart of the Lord, his, this, his year of redemption has also come. Easy question, what's longer, a day or a year? Obviously a year, right? It's no accident then that the Lord's vengeance is but for a day. His favor is for a year. The scriptures remind us over and over again of God's grace and love and patience alongside his just wrath. Will he punish the wicked? Yes, most certainly God will punish the wicked. But the Lord announces in Ezekiel 33, 11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Will God return in judgment? Most certainly, yes, but he is waiting. And why? 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Our God is long-suffering. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Do we imagine that our Savior punishes people with a smile on his lips? That he takes some sadistic pleasure in crushing his enemies under his feet? I would say God forbids such a thought. I think Jesus... I think he judges with tears in his eyes. That he weeps for those that he's called out to day after day and who continue to rebel against him. Even now he waits like a father searching the road for his prodigal son, longing for all those made in his image to be made into his children through faith. So let us beware of a spirit that rejoices at the death of the wicked or that cheers at the fall of our enemies. That's not the spirit of Christ. There will be a day of rejoicing that evil is over, but now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to watch and to wait, to pray and to plead, to cry and to weep, to call out to all who are far from Christ. 
This shouldn't be our heart, if only because of the fact that we were in the same place as all of our enemies, dead in our sins. Which is why we can rejoice in the truth of verse five where the Lord says, my own arm brought salvation. I didn't bring myself salvation, Jesus brought me salvation. Drawing from this passage in particular, the the church throughout the centuries has spoken of and illustrated an idea called Christ in the wine press. It's an image of Jesus standing under the vice that is used to crush grapes into wine. It's drawn from this passage and others, like the prophecy of Genesis 49.11, where it's prophesied of Judah, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Some even see a picture of Jesus in Numbers 13.23, where Christ is the cluster of grapes that's carried on a pole out of the promised land. The point of this image, Christ in the wine press, is this that Jesus has become the grapes in the wine press of God's judgment against sin. That he in his death has been trampled by the wrath of the Father. His lifeblood is spilled out for us. He is crushed for our iniquities. He takes on the wrath we deserve. His body is broken. His blood is spilt. And now, it flows out like the finest of wine to all the nations. It flows out as the blood of the new covenant so that everyone who drinks of Christ will never know the day of vengeance, but will rest forever in the year of the Lord's favor. Behold our God's patience. Behold his righteousness and his strength. Behold his exclusivity, his matchlessness. Behold his terrifying judgment. And behold his overflowing love. Let us not forget the the coming judgment that is part of our salvation, but let us also not forget the past judgment, the past judgment that fell on Jesus so that we could be saved. For you who have trusted in Christ, I want to invite you to take this Lord's Supper with us. I want to invite you to remember Jesus whose body was broken, whose blood was shed so that we might be saved from God's vengeance, so that we might be washed clean by the blood of Christ, so that we might be filled with the joy of the new wine of the kingdom of God. I want to invite you into a moment of silence and then I will pray for us And then Jordan and Trevor will come to distribute the bread and the cup. But let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word. Oh, Father, even in this startling description of your vengeance and your wrath, we find the greatness of your mercy. We see Jesus. We see Jesus who was crushed for us, was broken and bled on our behalf. 
Father, we are not able to bring our own salvation, but you have brought, us, brought it for us. And we rejoice now with great joy and with deep soberness and reflection on what you have done through Christ. And we remember him. And we ask, Lord, as we take the bread and the cup, that you would help us to remember him well. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.